thank you very much all for joining us for this event, this panel discussion on the reform of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Uh, my name is Mario Mancuso. I am a visiting senior fellow for international security here at the Hudson Institute uh, and really appreciate your coming. Um, I should also say that I want to thank you on behalf of Hudson, both those individuals who are in this room today, but also our, our uh, audience online. We greatly appreciate your interest in our programming and hope that you keep coming back. Um, what I will do is just start off with a few brief remarks, and then I want to turn it over to uh, what I expect will be a pretty lively and uh, thoughtful conversation. Uh, the reform of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States has been a topic that, uh, frankly, we've probably been following in the papers for almost a year now. The themes of reform have been around for in earnest and in a pretty acute way for at least a decade, although CFIUS, of course, is much older than that. Um, CFIUS is at the finish line, uh, rather Congress is at the finish line at the cusp of implementing what is, in my view, the most fundamental reform of CFIUS in its history, uh, which is saying something, um, both in terms of the legal jurisdiction it posits for the committee in terms of what kinds of transactions it has legal authority to review, but also in terms of how it thinks about national security risk in a policy sense in, in transactions. Um, so without further ado, we're going to turn it over to the panel, and the program will talk for roughly an hour. At the end of that discussion, we're going to open it up for questions, uh, and I invite the members of this audience to obviously engage us uh, in that. With me today, I'm very fortunate to have a pretty distinguished panel. A number of us have worked with Congress, have testified before Congress, have worked uh, uh, with Hill staff on ideas for how to reform, ideas that may be good, ideas that may be counterproductive in light of the imperative of the United States to attract uh, benign foreign investment. Uh, but I'll introduce them very briefly. Derek Scissors, uh, a noted uh, political economist, he's at AEI. He's a very, very close uh, China watcher in particular, but has been a thoughtful voice on foreign direct investment issues for a long time. Uh, Nancy McLernan, the president of the Organization for International Investment, an economist by training, uh, has uh, very, uh, uh, a lot of experience on foreign direct investment, but also a lot of experience in how U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies, non-Chinese companies especially, how they think about these issues in the United States. Um, and lastly, Michael Allen, uh, who is uh, Managing Director at Beacon Global Strategies today, but has a long history working on the Hill on Intel issues, uh, and uh, will be helpful with us today. So with that, I want to jump right into it. So maybe I'll start with you, Michael. First question. The CFIUS bill sort of implies a vision of the security environment in which the United States uh, finds itself in. Obviously, foreign investment is a possible risk vector. But as you read the bill, sort of, can you sketch out in a little bit more detail the vision that it assumes in terms of how the United, the security vision it assumes in terms of where the United States is today? Sure. Uh, Mario, first, thanks for having me. Thanks to Hudson for hosting such a terrific event. I guess the first thing I would sort of harken back to when I left the Bush White House and two years later joined the House Intelligence Committee, one of the first things that sort of came at us was the National Security Agency briefing the committee on aggressive Chinese cyber attacks. So 
I think just in terms of sort of the Washington consciousness, it's good to sort of trace the arc of how members of Congress and other people in the policy community began to see China. Traditionally, of course, as a rising power, sometimes called a responsible stakeholder, but certainly someone who would be an opponent of the United States over time. So as we began to digest the theft of intellectual property, gradually people came to understand what we now know is sort of in the intent, the design to create a regime to systematically take intellectual property here in the United States, not just through cyber theft, which is how people began to see it in the first instance, but through the deployment, the enrollment of students across the United States and uh, uh, you know, institutes of higher learning so that they might be able to learn some of our so-called crown jewels, and also through uh, the deployment of venture capital where they were able to invest in up-and-coming technologies and even get to see uh, upcoming technologies that perhaps they didn't invest in because they were in a position out in the venture capital world. So I think gradually over time, punctuated by a number of reports and congressional hearings and congressional inquiries, we're now at a place where I think the Congress, fearful of China's rise, particularly as it is sort of um, seen in China 2025, which, as you know, everybody here in the United States talks about, uh, I think Congress is responding to those fears. I might mention one other thing at the same time, is that the defense community, defense policymakers, have been talking about the third offset for a long time. What's the third offset? That's how is the United States going to maintain a serious war-fighting edge over time. We believe we had one for a time with nuclear weapons, precision-guided munitions, certainly sometimes stealth is included in one of the things that we had a huge advantage on. But now we see our sort of military qualitative edge apparently narrowing. We're searching around what will be the game changer for the United States. Increasingly, it, things come up like artificial intelligence, and artificial intelligence is something that the Chinese are investing in heavily in China 2025. So I think you've started to see these two policy trends or these two communities begin to merge, which brings us to a place where the CFIUS deals were getting rejected or heavily scrutinized even before the Cornyn legislation really got moving, and now that you've seen this historic CFIUS bill that will pass the Senate this week and be signed very soon, I think you've seen the manifestation of a very serious institutionalized effort to study foreign direct investment that's coming into the United States. Great. So that's a pretty bleak picture. Yes. So, um, so just so to quickly summarize that, you so, so China, it's your view that the U.S., let's call it the U.S. national security enterprise as a whole sees China as both clearly a security competitor, right, uh, but also an economic competitor. Certainly. And some of these industries in which the Chinese have been investing 
are industries which are winner-take-all industries in an economic sense, but also industries which may contribute heavily to qualitative military advantage. Dual use, absolutely. Fair summary. So I'd like to turn to Derek maybe for a moment, who for years has now kept the best, most comprehensive data, actual data on Chinese investment in the United States. Does the data support that contention? Um, it, the data does not support the Chinese making technology purchases in the United States. Uh, I realize everyone acts as if that's true, but it's not in what we can see. It does not mean that China is not illegally acquiring technology. The data, I don't track cyber theft. I track actual Chinese acquisitions um, or greenfield investment. Um, and you don't have uh, CFIUS prior to this reform. So I, I was involved in the reform process when it started in spring 2016. I supported it. I'm glad we undertook this reform on balance, not that it's perfect. But prior to this reform, without the additional resources that have been promised, without the additional authority that's been given, we weren't seeing CFIUS allow Chinese acquisitions of advanced technology. It was not happening. Now, China may Those have, deals that were notified. Right, right. Now, China may have been stealing the technology. It may have been involved in acquiring technology b below the radar. However, when you push people making those claims, they usually say, well, we can't see them. I'm like, all right. Might, they might be occurring, um, but the fact that you can't see them is not impressive. Uh, I would go back to the fact that I think Chinese outright theft of technology is a much more important threat than the legal acquisition that's being addressed um, in CFIUS reform. Now, you didn't mention, but I will you know, take 30 seconds to go one step further. Um, I'm not an, export, an expert on export controls. But there's a third mechanism by which US technology can be transferred to China, which is outside of the United States. Uh, involving you know, US business activity of various kinds. So we have a three-dimensional threat. We have Chinese theft, which is considerable. Um, we have uh, export transfers outside the US, which should be subject to export controls. And then the third leg of Chinese actual, actual acquisitions here, I don't think is very important. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't change our framework to make sure that we have the right rules, but you can't find numbers to say this matters and you get stories instead. Whenever people tell stories, I become somewhat suspicious. Got it. So, so I want to sort of maybe pulse on that a little bit. Obviously, there are, we assume, the government assumes that there are transactions clearly that are not notified to it that are happening in the private sector. I would assume that at some point, the US intel agencies will have a, a better sense of that, you know, because those transactions are by definition not formally notified to CFIUS in the standard, uh, uh, through the standard regulatory mechanism. but. On the broader point, which I think you agree with, which is, you know, Chinese efforts at uh, at you know enhancing its technological edge using one or more means. Um, how do you think the U.S. government's view has evolved on that point in particular, in light of the ascension of President Xi? I mean, what we've seen since President Xi has come from a U.S. vantage point, since he's become uh, he's risen to power in 2013, both the Communist Party's you know, reassertion of power within the economy, uh, paralleling President uh, Xi's assertion of power within the Communist Party. So can you talk a little bit about that? Right. I have an unconventional view that will lead probably to some agreement with a conventional view. First of all, China has always had industrial policy and this like, oh, look, made in China 2025 and so important. It's just a natural extension of what they were doing before that the Germans got upset about because now there are technologies on the list that the Germans want to maintain leadership in. 
Um, you know, I, I don't I don't find the obsession with Made in China 2025 at all justified or impressive. Second, I don't agree with the idea that which you implied, although you didn't endorse it, that the Chinese uh, China was undertaking pro-market reform until Xi Jinping came along. I think their pro-market reform effort faded well earlier than that. In fact, this association is associated with Hu Jintao uh, replacing Jiang Zemin rather than Xi Jinping replacing Hu Jintao. But where I do agree with, to put it bluntly, or sometimes people say baldly, um, is Xi Jinping is competent and Hu Jintao wasn't competent. And so whatever China was doing under Hu Jintao was less scary because it was not a competent government. It was looking to line its own pockets more than having strategic objectives for China. Uh, it was more reactive on that front, and, and Xi Jinping has a more grandiose vision. So I think you know you don't need to find a change in Chinese policy, which I don't think there was one, to be feel more threatened under Xi Jinping because Hu Jintao was running out the string and the people underneath him were serving themselves. Xi Jinping wants to be seen as the greatest Chinese leader since you know, you know, wherever you want to go. Uh, he's gotten rid of a lot of his enemies, so at least people think that there's a, there's a serious element to this that wasn't present before. So I wouldn't say Chinese policy changed when we discovered that they were engaging in cyber attacks or they suddenly stopped market reforming, because I don't think either of those things are true. But I do think Xi Jinping's rise means we have a more serious person running the show and we have a, a more goal-oriented Communist Party, which makes it potentially a greater threat to the United States. But don't you think, so let me just uh, push down on that a little mm -hmm. bit. Don't you think the reassertion of the Communist Party under President Xi's leadership is more than just a note about President Xi's competence vis-a-vis -vis Hu Jintao? Don't you think that's a qualitative difference in policy that actually has impacts at, at, the, at the economic level because you have a working assumption around the world that you have state-owned enterprises or state-affiliated sort of you know, microeconomic actors and you have private actors in China. But with the reassertion of the Communist Party cells inside of private companies, that's pretty unique to President Xi. No. They've always been there? No, I mean, look, I, I said this long before Xi Jinping came to power. If a Chinese private enterprise engages in a completely legitimate activity in the United States, it's com commercial, they're a private enterprise, no, the party isn't involved, there's no you know, political direction. At any time, under Xi Jinping and before Xi Jinping, that, enter, that activity in the United States can usurp, be usurped by, by the PLA or the, or the party or whoever wants to usurp it. Private entities did not have any protection from the Communist Party before Xi Jinping was general secretary, and they don't have any protection now. So, uh, you know, I get the style differences, um, and, and, and they matter in the sense that you're trying to figure out what Xi Jinping's intent, and I think his intent is fairly clearly stated. He wants, you know, a great China. Um, and, and Hu Jintao may have wanted the same thing. He just didn't seem to care very much. But private enterprises in China were never independent of the party under Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin because at any time, then and now, the party can take over their activity sure. and change its nature. So I'm going to push you again. <laughs> You'll get to uh, talk this soon. Is a, this, is, this, is, this is an interesting <laughs> point. So, so I, think, I don't think anyone disagrees that the party cells at the private companies had the authority to pull the thread. Right? Don't you think that the act of pulling the thread has become relatively more common in recent years? Maybe the answer is no, but that's, that, that I think is a critical question because it goes to shaping how private sector actors in China are viewed by CFIUS, among other uh, regulators. Uh, 
I would, CFIUS and other regulators should not view private entities differently than they did before because CFIUS should be engaged in a risk assessment. And the risk should be there's an unacceptable risk in the United States or there isn't. And that is based on the technology or now we've become more aware the acquisition of personal data uh, by foreign entities. So they should not have, they should not change their view. Do I think um, that you have a more uh, cohesive, focused Chinese policy, it isn't particularly aimed at acquiring technology, but it includes the acquisition of technology. Yes, that gets back to Xi Jinping being a more competent, effective leader than Hu Jintao, um, at least with regard to Chinese goals. Hu Jintao is apparently very competent in serving Hu Jintao's own interests, but he didn't seem to be that interested in China's broader goals. So I think you have a China that is more focused on what it's trying to do, and we, I don't want to, I could talk about that, but it would take a long time, so I'm not going to. Um, than you did in the previous government. I don't think that should be perceived as a higher risk by U.S. regulators because they shouldn't have been saying in 2011, oh, it's a Chinese private enterprise acquiring a dual-use technology. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, but it's a little different. So, so again, on, you really on, don't like this point, do you? No, 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 no. But I want to parse it because <laughs> no, it's a very important point because CFIUS itself announces and has always announced mm -hmm. that its methodology for reviewing foreign investments, its risk assessment, is a function of the buy side and the sell side. Who is the buyer and who is the seller? So if, in fact, there is a change in how buyers practically operate, right, today under President Xi versus uh, his predecessor, that actually changes the risk assessment. I, it's I, not as if the alternative is that under Hu Jintao, they just said it's a private company, therefore the risk is not there. It actually qualitatively impacts how CFIUS, using its own stated methodology, assesses the risk. So that's, I think, right. One, just, just two partial answers. One. The PLA was not like goofing off in 2011. <laughs> to the people that, that, that say now, oh, well, if the US cuts China off technologically, the Chinas will become serious about their technological advancement. That argument, please know what happened in this room, is nonsense. The Chinese are serious anyway. It's nothing to do with, oh, well, now they'll be serious. So um, you know, if you think that leadership, top-level leadership, affects the behavior of individual enterprises, then fine, there's a change. I don't, I don't, I don't see that as what matters. I think if you if you're talking about upgrade of Chinese technological capabilities over time, you have a different China now than you did 10 years ago. But I don't think it has to do with Hu Jintao. Mario, whether it's you, true Dick. or not, it's the perception <laughs> from everyone in Washington, especially the members of Congress. First initiated, you know, we were focusing on the war on terrorism. We were focusing on the war in Iraq. Honestly, in the Bush years. Uh, we had, not that no one was focused on China, they were, but when around 2011, 2012, members of Congress started to get educated on cyber hacking from China, and it has evolved over time by the DUIUX report and the rest. And so whether or not this is, debate is true or not, it's the threat perception here in Washington that is affecting a more hostile view towards foreign direct investment, of course from the Chinese, but also through a spillover effect into other countries, which, I'm which is a in. perfect yeah. segue <laughs> to Nancy. <laughs> thank you. I had to just break you too. I was, I was actually. I had to break you too. So, Mario, thank you for having me uh, here today. Thank you to the Hudson Institute. So, a little bit more about my organization. The Organization for International Investment represents 210 U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies, international firms that have made a very deliberate decision to invest in the United States and now employ almost 7 million Americans. And I actually love to start a CFIUS conversation with what we know about foreign direct investment in the United States. You all jumped to China. 
which is the tip of the sword right now on policy affecting foreign direct investment, but Chinese investment in the United States is still pretty small. And, and you know, you've mentioned a spillover effect. There obviously can be a, a spillover effect. So my members include um, German-based Siemens, um, Korea-based Samsung, um, Japan-based Toyota. Um, so it's a, a variety of companies from all different industries, from companies headquartered all over the world. The majority of our members are European because Europe is the largest investor in the United States. And I mentioned the close to 7 million US workers. Also, these companies are highly concentrated in the manufacturing sector, where about 20% of all manufacturing jobs are at an international company in the United States. Over the last five years alone, 54% of the manufacturing jobs created were at international companies. So any resurgence or renaissance of the US manufacturing um, industry is going to be courtesy of foreign direct investment. And so I think that the kind of why we need to care piece in terms of the, the, the government striking an important balance um, when they review foreign acquisitions is that we benefit greatly from foreign direct investment in the United States. And of course, um, you know, as a community, international companies want to ensure that our national security is first and foremost protected. But we also have an interest in making sure that the CFIUS process um, has, a, that the public has, the public and policymakers have confidence in CFIUS reviews. Because if they don't, the deals are going to become more and more politicized, right? Which creates an enormous amount of uncertainty. Yeah. So the legislation that is making its way to the president's desk, we have supported. Um, we believe that it was important to reform CFIUS. Um, CFIUS has been around for decades, but the last time CFIUS reformed was done was when uh, Miley Cyrus was touring as Hannah Montana, right? <laughs> so it's it's been a, it's been a while. We're kind of now touring as herself. Um, so for any of us who have had kids, but um, so it time to time to review it, um, time to uh, reform it. And I think that the the process that Congress and the administration went through to reform it was very thoughtful. This was how government. Was supposed to, is supposed to work, and I know Derek, you think it's very complex, but heck, it's a complex area. So you know you can't kind of put it on a postcard, right? Even though I know this administration, you know, wants to simplify a lot of things, this is a very complex area. So the international community, I think, benefits from this bill passing into law. It provides certainty. Um, it tries very hard to stick to kind of defense-related national security. Obviously, as a community and also just as a citizen of the United States, I wanted to steer away from economic um, protectionism, economic nationalism, right? Have a, have a more open economy. And um, I, I think that they've threaded the needle on that. Um, we have to ensure as, as the uh, new reform goes through regulation and how it's implemented, that it doesn't become another tool of um, trade tensions. Um, so we need to ensure that. But right now, the US remains the number one location for foreign direct investment. And our share of global foreign direct investment has been increasing after it had dropped dramatically. So whenever, you know, we can talk about China a lot, and we should, but it is by far um, not the only thing that CFIUS uh, impacts. Um, and uh, in an environment that is more and more competitive for dollars around the world, the US shouldn't risk um, unduly 
um, thwarting foreign direct investment in the United States. There are more and more options for companies to go to than ever before. Here, here, Nancy. I think mm -hmm. um, so. I think it's terrific. We should attract benign foreign direct investment. But I have a question. Do you have to say benign in front of that? I do have to say benign. <laughs> How about saying we want to restrict foreign direct investment that is problematic rather than... Th those are stylistic. <laughs> those are stylistic points. But style's important. St so it may be important. But the point, the point survives. Most which is foreign that direct investment is benign. I will stipulate, I will stipulate okay. that the overwhelming majority of foreign direct investment fantastic. is fantastic and should be encouraged. Right. On the other hand, we know... We know for a fact there are instances in which foreign direct investment can actually raise national security questions. Maybe not always problems, but national security questions, and the government has a pretty solemn obligation to look into those. Um, hear your point. Obviously, China is uh, not the only investor, and I don't want to make this about China. That would be unfair to China. Uh, but it is a part of the conversation. Interestingly enough, your organization has supported the bill, um, and there was a debate in Congress about whether or not, so Senator Cornyn, one of the lead sponsors of the bill, actually gave a speech at, at, at CSIS, in fact, where he made it very, very clear, this bill is about China. Made it very clear. Uh, I think he was channeling his bipartisan cohort, uh, but he made it very, very clear. Um, at the end of the day, the bill does not go out and actually mention China by name, and so you have an issue where China is not mentioned. China is clearly a subtext and you have non-Chinese foreign investors that are wondering if they're being sort of, you know, lumped together. Do you think it was a mistake uh, to not specifically identify China as a primary driver of the bill? Because it has this effect of, you know, just... Yeah. My members are global companies. They have operations in China. Targeting China will target them as well. So, you know, make no mistake, I mean, our companies that that have exposure in China are being reviewed differently because they have exposure in China. Absolutely. So um, whether they name China or not, they, you know, I think that there is uh, unwritten understanding that CFIUS is focused on Chinese acquisitions, right? So um, I, you know, I don't think that my companies are concerned um, that China wasn't named um, because, uh, and you know, members of Congress had approached us not not the, the sponsors of the legislation, but it said, well, can you just endorse something that says this is just going after China? And none of my companies, none of my European companies wanted to do that because, you know, they're a global company with significant operations in the United States and China and their home country. And so um, they want to have a process that reviews acquisitions for national security purposes. Um, and, you know, the mandatory filings now are, are limited to where there's government-owned entities. Um, and so I think that gave them a good deal uh, of comfort. Um, again, the majority of all these investments are um, commercial uh, in nature. Um, and uh, there were significant changes that were made that provide, uh, I think, overall, the international business community confident uh, confidence um, in the reforms that are being done. But, but your member base is obviously large global corporates, but there are lots of foreign investors in the United States that don't have, for example, value chain exposure to China. For example, if you're a middle market UK company and you read a CFIUS bill, bill that makes it very clear that you're foreign for purposes, would you not have benefited if the bill were actually more explicit about you know, uh, you know, what it was targeted at versus just leaving foreign undifferentiated when in fact the principal driver is China. That's the point that I think. Yeah, but, but, I, but I maintain that it's going to be up to 
uh, organizations like myself and others to really spell out what the new reforms do. Um, and no offense to law firms or accounting firms, but I've already seen, you know, the process is going to be much more difficult now, hire us, et cetera. I'm actually arguing for clarity. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. So I, I think it's important um, to um, uh, educate um, the foreign business community in general, and I know that our organization is going to continue to do that because we think it makes CFIUS more complicated where it should be more complicated, and, and by increasing the confidence in the CFIUS process, which reform does mm -hmm. um, by its nature, that'll actually provide a more stable environment for that mid-sized UK company. Great. So, so Mike, uh, is the bill better because it doesn't name China? I think so. I mean, to me, this didn't matter as much. We all do know it's about China. I think, I think on balance, it's better that we didn't have a blacklist or a white list because people would be arguing. Uh, I happened to be with a person who was negotiating the bill when they got a call late night uh, or, or late afternoon that said, you know, is Singapore on the list or is Singapore not on the list? And so he said, don't worry about it. We've That provision has been struck. And so I think it was going to cause unnecessary anxiety. There, you know this. I'm a lawyer, but you're a real lawyer practicing. There's a lot of guilt. That was an insult, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of just, guilt. I'm just glad he didn't call me an economist. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. There, well, you know, we were there when the Bush administration had to rewrite the regs after Dupai Port's world. That um, was fun. That was, that, was a, that was a wild ride. Yeah. Um, this is going to take a while to do the regulations for this, so there's a lot of give in the statute. And so I don't yeah. know that we know. There was a tremendous amount of lobbying activity going on in the Hill. I suspect there'll be a lot of lobbying activity going on over here at Treasury as they fight over the regulations. Uh, Eric, you have a view on this. Yeah, and I disagree with everybody on the panel, uh, of course. <laughs> Um, I, you know, in a January hearing with, with both Henserling and Pittinger in the room, and they were obviously on quite different sides of this issue, I said, look, this is a, stop pretending this isn't about China. We don't benefit by pretending our legislation is different than it actually is. And I'll give you one, because we don't want to spend too much time on this, one really concrete issue, which is this administration thinks economic security is national security, and they say it all the time. Right? So they have this idea that, well, you know, uh, imports are clearly bad. Foreign investment is better because we can build in the United States. But we're a little suspicious of those foreigners as well. We don't want them controlling our industry, our key industries, and they have this very apparently very long list of key industries. So with this backdrop, when you don't define exactly what you're talking about, you open the door with foreign to this abuse of, of, of in my opinion, sorry, I shouldn't say abuse. I should say, in my opinion, potential abuse of what national security means by saying, well, economic security is national security, and I don't trust foreign investors in our key industries, of which the list is way too long. And now we have a tool to actually discriminate against those investors. Whereas if we said, these are the countries and the investors that we think are an actual threat to national security for these very good reasons, we narrow the, we narrow the, the scope of the inquiry. So I understand the points being made over here. I don't disagree with them. But I think the current CFIUS language lends itself to future abuse. Um, I think we have an administration that has shown that it is, to, in my opinion, stretching national security too far. For example, with the Section 232 on autos. And, and, and another and the last point, in my, I testified on this three times in the last year. So this is the public part, not just the private part. And every single time I testify, the Democratic side, which may take the House uh, in the fall, says, this doesn't go far enough. We need economic action. And so I feel like the threat is 
you need to define what CFIUS is doing really precisely. Otherwise, 10 years from now, you're going to find out it's a tool to do things you do not want it to do. And it may be five years from now. I think it's a very good point because at the, at the start of the whole CFIUS reform cycle, there were something like six or seven different CFIUS bills, some of which would have included an economic test. Now, those have obviously fallen by the wayside. Um, maybe if we can just turn a little bit to you know, the bill that started and where we ended up and how we feel about the evolution of the bill, you know, whether there were changes that are in there now that you know, we'd rather not have seen or otherwise. Like how to talk a little bit about where we're at, where we landed vis-a-vis -vis where we think we need to be. Maybe I'll start with you, Nancy. Yeah, uh, thanks. I, just following up on the conversation you just had, it, things were already happening before this bill got enacted. Um, the, the CFIUS has already been used as a means in which to accomplish something that wasn't able to be accomplished in the, in the marketplace, right? So deals have been scuttled already because a U.S. competitor used the CFIUS process mm -hmm. as a wedge in a commercial environment. So to think that that hasn't already happened, it certainly hasn't happened. I think Dubai Ports was an example of where that, that ended right. up happening, um, as well as uh, Unical and you know just a number of other deals that have- Broadcom. Broadcom right, exactly. So I, I think that the potential for it being um, a, um, a protectionist tool is there. I think by its nature, it's hard to strip it out completely, which is why uh, my job is safe in terms of being <laughs> able to uh, ensure that the process stays as non-politicized as possible, right? And, and I think that, that it, it's up to um, groups uh, like mine and others to sort of hold a mirror up to that process and, and be there to, to defend the process. So I, so I think that even without the reforms, it, it was being used as a protectionist tool. And, and clearly this administration um, does uh, equate economic security with national security. And so it's going to be really important to ensure that the regulations are, are um, promulgated in a way that minimizes that. Um, and I think that active involvement in the regulatory process is going to be very important for my organization um, and others. In terms of where the bill started and where the bill ended up, uh, we think that, again, Congress and the administration um, took a very thoughtful approach. And there were changes that were made that um, uh, ended up having us um, in favor of the final legislation. So first, it creates a regular order process to consider technology that could um, uh, threaten national security. Previously, it was there was a lot of focus on the company itself, say a critical technology company, and any transaction that they did was going to have to go through CFIUS. And this more um, uh, closely just focuses on the technology and whether that poses a national security risk than the company itself. Um, and then uh, something that was very important for us was to exempt affiliated transactions. So if Siemens parent company was investing in Siemens in the US, their US operations here, that was going to need to go through CFIUS. Um, and you know, we thought, thought that that was uh, overly broad and obviously would um, end up uh, stopping a lot of foreign direct investment um, as the uh, intercompany deals uh, or transactions were reviewed. We thought that was too much. But um, in general, uh, we feel that the scope of CFIUS now maintain, you know, in the, the legislation is still maintained on defense-related national security, and therefore we support the, the final version. But the, the first version, we felt, um, definitely was too broad. There. 
Well, the first version was eight pages long. Um, and that just didn't get circulated publicly. The history of this is in spring 2016, uh, Senator Cornyn's office, they were the, not the first to consider CFIUS, obviously, but the trigger to the cycle because Senator Cornyn's in leadership. So if he has a bill, he's actually going to get a vote on it if he wants it. And then that led to competing bills. They were looking at a, a surge in Chinese investment in the United States that started in late 2015, early 2016. And they wanted to figure out how to respond to that surge. Um, and then the bill you know, expanded rather considerably and, and was changed from there. Um, you know, I'm not so naive to think that we were going to pass an eight-page bill on CFIUS, but I do long for those days where uh, that was the text I had to read rather than this text has been changed again and now it's 150 pages. There, you know, um, I said this in, in the green room, there have been so many versions of this bill, as you guys know, that saying, like, this is the best version or the worst version doesn't actually make a lot of sense. There were clearly worse versions. There was a round that I, like, started screaming at people about because they had brought in, you know, the DNI reviewing every single transaction. I'm like, this is not, there's no CFIUS anymore. You just, you just shifted this all to the DNI, to Director of National Intelligence. Um, so, uh, you know, that was not a good move. There were, there, were, there were more positive steps I mentioned. I like better engaging China, uh, more being more explicit about China. Um, I would have preferred a separate export control bill and a, and a separate CFIUS bill. The implementing re regulations are different. The organizations are different. Uh, you know, if I had no export control, this is better than no export control bill. There was no point doing this, in my opinion, as I said in, at the beginning, with no export control bill. Um, I, I think, you know, this is what, I, I agree with Nancy, this is the way Washington works. There were too many chefs. The stew isn't ideal because there are too many chefs, but if you do it unilaterally the way some in the executive branch want to do it, you usurp congressional authority, you don't go through a proper process, that was not the way to go. So uh, I'm, pr I'm, I'm happy with the process. The outcome, because you have a democratic process, is going to have some flaws in it. Mm -hmm. um, but we definitely avoided so, some, of the, some of the really bad missteps. We did get an export control component, which we needed. And I think the key thing, th this could turn out to be like an A grade if somehow we can work with the implementing regulations to make them clear. There are going to be a lot of them. It's going to be a lot to track. Um, some smaller companies are going to go like, I can't deal with this. It's too much of a mess. But if they focus on clarity in the implementing regs rather than people's agendas you know, for what export control should be and so on, then I think we get a really good bill out of it. That's a big ask, but I, I think it's in sight at least. One other thing I will add is that I think that there is wide agreement that CFIUS has not had enough resources. Absolutely. Right? And uh, despite uh, all the best efforts of, of those on uh, the CFIUS team across agencies and working late nights and weekends, they're not getting deals reviewed in, in a timely way. And that's hurting foreign direct investment. Companies are having to pull out and refile. Um, just reviews are just taking longer and longer. You know, time is money. And you know, I know investment bankers that say, I'm going to put all the domestic to domestic transactions here and the foreign to US transactions here. And I'm going to first go through the, the domestic to domestic ones because that, the, the timing on that can be far easier because the CFIUS reviews are taking so long. Um, so the final bill provides more resources and also provides a means in which the administration can go back to Congress and say if they need more um, a resource. And I think that that is going to be tremendously helpful as well. Mario, just zooming back for a second to why you called it a, you know, a historical revision to this particular bill. I remember serving in the National Security Council in the Bush years. I was in legislative affairs at the time. Uh, 
the international economic team at the National Security Council who looked after the CFIUS process, at least as far as the White House concerned, was basically, hey, gang, we're pro-foreign direct investment. We want to take care of national security. Fix it however you can, but we want this deal to go through. I don't think the, the thrust of this, the gravamen of the bill, says the same thing anymore. I think it's, hey, everyone, we have got a lot of threats here to national security. Slow this process down. Take a closer look at it. The traditional ways that law firms, brilliant law firms, suggested that some of the national security concerns could be mitigated aren't going to work anymore. I think that many firms, not just Chinese, but other um, people that have links to the Chinese are going to have to do a lot of new work to come in to the, to the national security folks. They're used to going to the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department. I think they're going to have to come into the national security folks, explain where their investments are, explain how they benefit U.S. jobs, explain how they take national security very seriously. So I think the pendulum has shifted in the aggregate, and I think a lot of people are noting that overseas. So I do worry that even though the bill, I think, in the aggregate or in the specifics really on the definitions of passive investment and how this affected private equity, I think the companies got what they needed. But from just sort of a macro perspective, it says, hey, look, the national security crowd is in the ascendancy. It's harder to invest in the United States now. It's more complicated. CFIUS was already painfully slow. And so it sort of sends a, bit, a big message that we may, and Afi and others may worry about over time, that you know, the United States is too complicated to invest in. I think um, economic nationalism is rising, not just in the United States, but around too. the world. Um, last year, uh, foreign direct investment uh, contracted uh, around the world. Um, and I think that as more countries, not just the United States, but more countries, both in terms of trade policy and changes to foreign, the reviews of foreign acquisition continue to evolve, I think that global connections overall are going to become more difficult. You know, we're talking a lot about national security. One point about foreign direct investment that I think is uh, very important to make, which is foreign direct investment actually puts other countries on the same side of the economic ledger as the United States, right? So if we succeed, they succeed. A and trade and foreign investment um, help our foreign policy mm -hmm. goals, right? What's the saying that if, if goods and capital cross borders, troops don't, right? So an important part of foreign direct investment is that it, it increases um, strong ties with our trading countries um, and trading partners. And I think that that is missed a little bit as we're, we're focused on national security. Actually, cross-border investment can help protect national security as well. I think that's an important point. That may be the subject of a different panel because you know, <laughs> essentially CFIUS is a denial strategy, right? It's focused on foreign investment that may play a risk. The other piece to the equation is some of the affirmative instruments of economics to try to advance you know, strategic goals of the United States and of the international community. I want to transition because I know we want to get to questions. As hard as the policy of CFIUS is, I'm going to assert that the implementing regulations are going to be harder, right? Because it's easier to conceive of a SIFT, the foreign investment SIFT, and much harder to operationalize. 
give you an example. Nancy, you raised the point uh, that you know, CFIUS before this reform was already being used as a protectionist tool. I don't want to paraphrase, but you sort of made that point. And I would even assert that I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it could have been manipulated. But if you are a foreign investor, what, and you may be subject to CFIUS, you absolutely need clarity, because you actually may be disadvantaged in a transaction. A, US, a seller of a US business may, by virtue of the fact that you're foreign, may just decide not to sell to you, okay? Uh, because they don't want to deal with the regulatory overhang. So there are lots of ways in which the regulations could clarify the intent of Congress to, to create an even finer sift. So in these last 10 minutes before we get to questions, what I'd like to do is, from your own individual perspectives, is if you could sort of sit down with Treasury and say, on the implementing regulations, this is what you need to focus on. Clarifying subject matters, you know, areas where the regulations would have the greatest impact in striking the right operational balance between the investment we want to encourage and the investment we want to identify and interdict if need be, where would you tell them to focus on? Derek. Well, I mean, this is where I started fighting with them a while ago um, on, on how to write the legislation. So I, I am not sure that it's the most important part. It's just the part I've been involved in the longest. You cannot be running around talking about critical technologies you ha and breakthrough technologies and frontier technologies. You got to tell people what the hell you're saying. And you're allowed to change that. You shouldn't be, you know, obviously what the frontier of technology is not going to be the same even a year from now in some cases that it is now. But my problem is that, you know, when I read this, I, I start seeing, seeing, listening to the way some people in the administration and the Congress say, define what's critical. And my, all these alarm bells go off that critical can be abused. And even if it's not abused, it, you, you paralyze too many companies with trying to decide what a critical technology is. So the, the, you know, the, one of the primary goals for the CFIUS reform is, an, is a laudable but very difficult goal, which is, as we discussed, try to find these under-the-radar smaller transactions that are potentially important in either military or dual-use technology. Fine, but not every technology matters. I mean, you have this fight all the time with, with the national security interventionist crowd. Oh, Rare earths are crucial to national security, all right? Did you do the supply and demand analysis to find out if there's an actual threat here? And there isn't. Um, so you know, that's, this, that's what I would look for primarily on the implementing regs. You need to tell me what, what constitutes a critical technology and why, rather than just throwing the terms around, so that as a corporate investor, I can evaluate that. I can see some principles, some, some practical guidelines now, and some principles going forward for, so when I know that these transactions should be notified or are going to be reviewed if they're not notified. That's where, the, 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 that's where we started as the heart of this, the Chinese buying up technology that we don't know about. Well, fine, but if the Chinese are buying up technology about, that we don't know about that makes a better vacuum cleaner, I'm not too worried about that. So you've got to tell me what you mean, and it's really hard, and they don't want to do it because they want to preserve their authority. But if you just say critical technology, and we learn by doing that, Oh, hey, man, you know, there are a lot of people in the administration who have a pretty broad definition of critical technology. Then we get the protectionist problem Nancy's talking about. So that's where I would focus the implementing reg effort, transparency in that particular aspect. I would um, ask the Treasury Department um, to remain very focused on national security. Any um, clarifying regs that can be um, implemented that help ensure that um, CFIUS is not being used as a means to escalate uh, trade disputes, uh, market uh, reciprocity, or some sort of bygone industrial policy. 
um, trying to save industries that you know we're moving past um, is something that um, uh, as an organization we're going to be uh, very very focused on. Um, I also think I'd advise Treasury. Look, there's a lot of smart people at the Treasury Department and other agencies, but engage the public and interested parties often. Even the very smartest of people can miss things, and we've seen that. So the more open and transparent and uh, that the, the regulatory process is, I think that um, uh, the final result will benefit. Great. Thank you. Well, I mean, I definitely agree with uh, what Derek said. Let me say something related. And since I used to work on the House Intel Committee, I think we need to invest a lot more in our intelligence capabilities to be able to collect overseas or learn. It doesn't have to be something nefarious like we might do in uh, hunting down a terrorist or, or, or in the rest. But there's a lot of things the intelligence community can do to better understand what foreign actors are after and why and how that might affect us. And then they need to do a net assessment back here with the experts within the Defense Department to make sure we have the requisite experts to be able to figure out what's a permissible investment and what's not in the critical technology area. Because what I fear is if you don't, ha if you don't know the facts and we're just steering blind in a database full of Chinese companies and joint ventures and individuals who are out at a particular address in Silicon Valley that people are just going to say, you know what, I don't know. We don't know who these people are. Let's just say no. Just forget it. And so I don't want it to be too big. I don't want the brush to be so broad that we'd knock out money or investment or involvements or collaborative partnerships that we need. And so I think we've got to get a lot smarter in what other people are doing, but also tap into these deep reservoirs of expertise in private industry so that the Department of Defense and the other ones who are going to be opining on some of these questions are really well educated into what they're blocking and what they're not. Can I just throw out a, a somewhat of a rhetorical thought? I know we'll, sure. go, we'll no, open sure, it up no, to no. questions. Um, so when a, a Chinese insurance company acquired the Waldorf Astoria in New York, it went through Cepheus. Right, because our diplomats stay there, our presidents have stayed there. So it feels to me, though, if the Waldorf Astoria is important because it's the venue for um, uh, you know, our, our diplomats and elected officials, why not have it go through a security scrub regardless of who owns it? Right? I mean, in a world of 2018 where you know, the, the ability um, and the meaningfulness of putting a flag on a company really is diminishing. These companies are global, right? They're putting their money where, and their investments, um, and their manufacturing, where it makes sense for them commercially if they're a commercial entity. And so, you know, I just throw this out there that any acquisition um, or um, transaction of any nature, that if it has a national security rub to it, regardless of who is the owner, should be our, our sort of focus. Um, so I wanted the Waldorf to have a scrub regardless, um, not just because it was a, a Chinese. You know, and the same thing has been true for, for countless other acquisitions. My son um, just uh, got commissioned as an officer in the Air Force. And the, uh, the Air Force had to come to me and ask me questions, security questions. And uh, the woman said, has uh, your son ever worked for a foreign company? And I said, 
do you know what I do for a living? And it was like, why do you ask that? Yeah. Somehow if he had worked for Nestle, that would have made him more of a risk. It feels that we should sort of be past that um, in 2018. You know, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting thought experiment because we tend to assume that national borders, borders are a good proxy for risk, but I fear that that would make things more cumbersome, not less. Yeah, that's true. Um, mm -hmm. In any event, uh, one of the things I'd like to do is uh, maybe if we could just run one final concluding thought on any topic of relating to our panel discussion, and then maybe we can turn it over to questions. So uh, for my part, I'll start this off. I think the regulations, uh, there are lots of things it should focus on, but really go upstream. One of the things the bill does is it subjects non-passive investments in certain technologies or infrastructure to CFIUS jurisdiction. If we can be clearer about what is non-passive, then those buyers can fall outside the system, which I think is enhances investment. Right. On the other hand, it reduces the workload of CFIUS so that they can spend more time working on deals that they should really be focused on versus deals that can't raise a risk. So that's just my concluding thought. Um, well, it's part of FIRMA, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it even though it's not CFIUS. Uh, I said at the outset the data don't show Chinese acquisitions of U.S. technology on a large scale. Uh, I have not seen numbers uh, or, or, or evidence that convinces me that acquisitions of advanced technology are occurring below the radar either. Acquisitions of technology that go broke, that I've seen stories on. So I, I shift the, the, the focus here in protecting national security to export controls, which of course is part of the FIRMA bill. And we just talked about how CFIUS needs more resources. The Commerce Department is involved in multiple investigations of national security under Section 232, which we have done very rarely until now. So that's a new challenge. It's on a scope that they have not faced now. Dumping you know, a new export control mandate in a more difficult environment on their lap does not seem to me to be fair to people at Commerce. So if we're talking about more resources for, for CFIUS, we need more resources for BIS and any other agency at Commerce that you want to task with this such that they can focus on export controls. In other words, it's no good to say, hey, you know, all the experts said we need to focus on export controls, so we did, but we did it in a way that actually won't work. Um, what, I, what I really care about going forward is that, we're, that we have the right expertise, the right staff, the right resources on the export control side, because that's actually where the threat is, as, as I see it in the evidence, in terms of, of unwanted technology transfer to China. Uh, <clears throat> passage of FIRMA will give the public and policymakers confidence in the CFIUS review process that hopefully will um, ensure that deals uh, or less deals are politicized a uh, big if is going to be how the regulations are written um, in an administration where economic security is one and the same of national security. Um, that you know there are concerns um, in terms of how this administration might implement um, regulations. Um, but I also just think it's really worth saying the process worked here. That that no one did something unilaterally. That it was um, a very thoughtful process. How Congress reviewed it. And it was good that it, it did it in an environment that was not a white-hot political environment. During Dubai ports, when that all happened, and the bills that were first introduced um, in that environment were, mm -hmm. were pretty crazy um, and would have had, uh, yeah, very extreme. And, uh, and thankfully, uh, legislation, um, you know, there was a, a thoughtful process that ended up happening there as well. So being able to legislate in an environment where there's not a um, sort of a political spotlight, I think, is really good. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, we are pleased with where it ended up, especially considering uh, where it started out. 
Not the eight-page thing, because I didn't see that. <laughs> I take Derek's point that the Chinese have been investing in a lot of the technologies listed in China 2025, you know, long before it was sort of ensconced as China 2025. But what it's done is, maybe this is helpful, it's catalyzed, I think, uh, at least the United States government and maybe people, probably people in our sort of investment hubs around the country um, with this feeling that they need to work harder to make sure the United States stays, stays substantially ahead. Except here in Washington, all we do is have panicked conferences about, oh my God, we're losing to the Chinese, we're losing to the Chinese and AI and this and in that. And I don't know if we really know whether we're losing. I don't know if we're talking to the right people from Silicon Valley, Austin, Boston, wherever else. Um, I propose Hudson have a conference <laughs> on artificial intelligence to have people from here in Washington who are more of the alarmist view, and I'd probably put myself in that category as sort of a defense and intelligence hawk, but to bring some other technologists and others so that we might have some sort of rational exchange of, hey, where do we stand on all these things, and how much extra policy work do we need to put into these regulations to tighten the screws or loosen the screws? Right. Terrific. Uh, with that, let's turn it over to questions. I don't know if there's a mic in the room while we... Okay. You. Hi. Thank you for this panel. Rachel Oswald, reporter with Congressional Quarterly. Um, once this uh, bill gets implemented, what do you think lawmakers need to keep their eye on? Um, the way the regs come out at Treasury, um, the way the Trump administration may try to use this to kind of, as you said, potentially escalate trade disputes. Um, it sounded like there was a, maybe perhaps a learning curve for, for some lawmakers involved in this. Um, what are the other things lawmakers should stay focused on um, in the years ahead? Rachel, did you direct that at anyone in particular? Well, we're in the, like as I said, we're in the age of, uh, well, it, we're trying to strike a balance. I think the balance had been on foreign direct investment. The national security people are now in the ascendance. Congress has got to check to make sure that we don't overdo it one way or the other, that we don't skew here for the next few years too far in the national security direction and thereby defeat um, or discourage a lot of foreign direct investment in the United States that contributes to many, many American jobs. We have to, you know, that's Congress's role to do hearings, to really question what's coming out of the administration. And it sounds like they're motivated. And uh, well, look, too often Congress passes a law and then forgets about what's going on for a couple of years. I think they need to be uh, have a sustained interest in the implementation process. So, 2020 election, we'll make sure we be talking about this. Um, water flows downhill, so I don't know enough, and I'm not sure there is anyone qualified to know enough where the weaknesses in the legislation are. But um, I do know that China is not going to stop trying to acquire technology from us, from Germany, from any any place they can get it. So if, if you know, this started off with a concern about China acquiring U.S. technology uh, in, in, air, in military and dual-use areas um, that, that was more advanced than we wanted them to have, 
they're going to find, they're not going to give up. They're going to be like, oh, look at this legislation. It's perfect. I guess there's nothing we can do. So, you know, if you're members of Congress and you care about this issue, look for where you try to follow up with the defense intelligence community, with the, with the business community, with people like me who follow what the Chinese are doing. Uh, you know, where, what are they doing now? What's the, what's the response to this legislation? If you were concerned about protecting US national security from Chinese technology acquisition, how are they acquiring the technology now that you've taken the step? They're not gonna give up. Maybe the situation is better. I think we all hope that it will be. Um, but, but that's where the weaknesses in the legislation from the national security perspective are gonna show up. How do they get around it? What new strategies they adopt? That's, that was the original goal. Interested members of Congress need to take a look again in two years and say, all right, I hope this is better, but it's not going to be perfect. What's next? The gentleman in the red tie. That's you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Bill Veal, I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. I think the panel has done a great job of talking about the U.S. perspective on this, but I want to pick up on what Derek, I think, was just uh, edging on to. And uh, sort of the balloon problem, if you have a, uh, you push on one side of this balloon from the U.S. side, what's going on with technology that, uh, China and other countries may want to get from other countries. Should this legislation have something that uh, requires or, or in, uh, uh, sort of enjoins uh, state and uh, defense to work with our allies to create some kind of, of corresponding CFIS type of process? The Germans have been slow to wake up on this, but it seems like now they're reviewing some of, some of those. Uh, so I will take a crack at that. What's interesting is the legislation actually encourages uh, you know, the, the U.S. government to reach out to its allies and work with others. In fact, we're seeing it already. I think one of the most underreported stories of CFIUS is how there are CFIUS-like re regimes either strengthening or emerging in other parts of the world. So the Bundestag passed legislation in the fall, strengthening their own, uh, pretty modest, frankly, compared to the CFIUS regime, but it does have some teeth. They just blocked, the Germans just blocked the transaction. The U.K. is expected has just recently done the same. They use their antitrust authorities to do it. But post-Brexit, they expect to have a CFIUS-like regime. France has long had a system. Mm -hmm. They've upgraded it. The Aussies, the Canadians have a system. So I think this sort of CFIUS around the world theme is actually explicitly called out in the legislation, which again, I just want to congratulate the, the Congress, because I think it's a home run. It's a difficult topic. Um, but what I will be personally looking for in addition to the implementation of the rest of the bill and the drafting of the regulations, is how seriously the rest of the U.S. government actually does what Congress has clearly, um, you know, uh, communicated that it wants the government to do, which is to do exactly as you suggest they do. National um, folks, uh, the purple shirt, sir. I'm Drake Long with the Global Taiwan Institute. Um, so we've talked about the spike in FDI at late 2015, early 2016, and I'd actually like to touch on that just a little bit more because in retrospect, that spike was somewhat of a form of, it was FDI, but it was also somewhat a form of capital flight. When we talk about foreign direct investment, especially with China, that's a very important subject to kind of broach. So I'm curious if we assume the worst with CFIUS, which is where this reform bill turns into a very strong protectionist tool, which looks very likely under this administration, where will the FDI go if there's another spike like what we saw in 2016, um, which was mostly the, role, the result of devaluation of the yuan, which seems more likely with each coming year to sort of happen. 
So I'm just curious if anybody on the panel has a perspective on that. Where exactly will Chinese FDI go next if CFIUS becomes too strong for any type of breakthrough? So I'll just jump in quickly on the, the 2015 and 2016 spike in FDI in the United States was actually more a result of corporate inversions. So, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, had actually been recovering in terms of its, its FDI um, since the, the Great Recession um, in 2015 and 2016. You mean total foreign investment in the U.S., right? Well, even annual flows. Right, but, but you're not just flows. talking about just Chinese. You're talking no, about no, all sources. No, no, total, yes, yes yeah. total foreign direct investment, sorry. Mm -hmm. So the, the spikes in 2015 and 2016 um, were, were mostly due to when a U.S. company acquires a foreign company and moves its um, operations offshore, principally for tax purposes. In 2017, the, um, uh, the Obama administration put in um, Regulation 7874, which um, hopefully no one knows the details of, <laughs> tax regulation, um, which I think uh, curtailed uh, corporate inversions. And so the 2017 number, which did drop significantly from 2016, uh, I think is in large part due to the drying up of corporate inversions, because FDI in the U.S. overall remains very strong. In terms of Chinese investment, I think China is turning more toward Europe right now, um, pending um, uh, other CFIUS-type um, uh, reviews that uh, that may come online. So, I mean, you're right that a lot of Chinese investment uh, 2015, 2016 was flight capital. Um, not very much of that is direct investment. Chinese flight capital was much larger in size uh, than direct investment. CFIUS is not really a block to flight capital. Flight capital is money shows up in U.S. banks and it's routed through Luxembourg um, or the Caymans or whatever. Um, so. Uh, two different questions here. Could there be another round of, 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 of net capital flight out of China? Yes. Um, that's a little off the scope of this, of this discussion. I don't think CFIUS is, is, a, is, is an issue there. Uh, where the Chinese are looking to invest, we've talked, we've talked about it here. Um, you know, there has been an increase in Chinese investment in Europe. Um, that will last a while. The, the history of Chinese investment is they overwhelm the local market. They go in these floods, Australia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Brazil, North America. Um, and so we're going to get another year or so of heavy Chinese investment in Europe. And then they'll look around for who needs capital and who is more willing to take Chinese money um, than, you know, than others are at the time. Maybe they'll go back. Maybe we'll have a new government in Australia by then. And we'll get a lot of you know, very intense Chinese investment in Australia. So two different things. The capital flight, which could occur, is not really CFIUS relevant. Um, uh, the Chinese before CFIUS reform had a pattern of heavily investing in certain markets for several years, getting pushback, and then moving on to new markets. And that we're, they've done that now with going to North America, from North America to Europe. They'll move on from Europe 2019, 2020. And you know, I'm not smart enough to guess at what the world global environment will be at that point. I do think it's important to point out the, the very uh, the dichotomy between what's happening here in Washington and what governors continue to do. So governors continue to beat the Chinese bushes to bring in Chinese investment, uh, greenfield investment in particular, to their states. As we go around, we work a lot with governors um, on policies at the state level that could have an impact on foreign direct investment. And they are out there, uh, China is always on their international trip tours um, looking for foreign direct investment. I agree completely with that. I will say, and I, I said it to a bunch of governors and mayors in 2016, there's not a lot of Chinese greenfield investment in the United States, period. So you get all these people saying they're going to do this and they're going to do that, and the realized outcome is pretty weak. 
Um, the, bur the burst in Chinese investment globally in the U.S. was M&A. It was not greenfield investment. Well, that's true of all foreign direct yeah. investment. So the majority, about 80, 85 percent of foreign direct investment in the U.S. and most industrial countries is through M&A because that's the best way to enter a market and have access um, to. I'm not, that wasn't to pick on China. That was to actually to warn local officials that when a Chinese you know, billionaire shows up, uh, the odds are you're not going to get a big greenfield investment. You know, there's another point that I think is related to this, which is that, you know, while countries do in fact compete for foreign direct investment, and we do want to remain as a country, as a general principle, competitive, you know, the most attractive places to invest in the world today, generally, there are exceptions, are in OECD countries, most of, most of whom are U.S. allies. And so I think the Chinese will, you know, and anyone else, frankly, when they're looking to outbound invest, they're going to look to invest in those markets. And those markets increasingly are starting to be skeptical of certain foreign investment. And I actually think to the earlier question about where the U.S. should go, what Congress clearly tried to do, I would suspect that the U.S. government is going to be working closely with its strategic allies, try to ensure that, you know, to the extent that can, these are sovereign countries, they will have CFIUS-like regimes to enhance their own national resilience, if you will. Case in point, you know, we've talked about Germany a little bit, about the UK, but there was just an announcement recently out of Israel that Israel, a very important US ally in the region, small, tiny country, but technology powerhouse, working on some cutting edge technologies, and a place where in recent years the Chinese have substantially increased their investment. Israel is now considering a CFIUS like regime. So I think the point is, is that over time, the most attractive places to invest may become, there might be some degree of, <laughs> of harmonization, if you will. It's a long way off, but I think that is a strategic end state. Eric Preston, Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office. Um, this is primarily for Mr. Scissors, but I would welcome anyone to respond. Um, so as you talked about at the beginning, the primary means of uh, that China's been using to uh, take control of technology is through um, joint force, joint ventures, and other forced tech transfer uh, to U.S. businesses operating in China, um, or just, uh, as uh, Mr. Allen mentioned, through hacking. It's not primarily through legal investment. So I'm just wondering what uh, the, you think this policy will be used for in terms of preventing tech transfer. Um, and you also talked about potential for abuse this policy being firma? Sifius. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, what is it actually going to be protecting against in terms of tech transfer? Um, and you also talked about potential for abuse. Uh, I know you can't see into the future and, and, and elections, but even just in the short term, uh, what ways could this go wrong in terms of not only uh, not preventing tech transfer, but maybe just stymieing investment? Well, I mean, we opened the 301, Section 301, against China coercive Chinese IP practices. So there is a tool that we could use that would address some of that. Um, we have lost the plot, in my not at all humble opinion, on the 301 uh, what, versus what we started with and where we are now. Um, so, but we have tools outside of Firma, outside of CFIUS to, 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 to address uh, cyber. Um, and I'm only talking about sort of the big tools. Uh, the, the panel probably knows more about the smaller security-oriented tools. Um, so that's, I'm going to put that aside, because we've already kind of swung and missed on that, in my opinion. 
now, with regard to export controls, well, we have legislation in, in FIRMA. Uh, we have language in FIRMA. It's pretty vague. And the implementing regs can be written in such a way that they're more effective. Now, I would have liked to have them written to say, we're talking about transfer to Chinese companies, because that's really what the threat is. So we're going to have to work around that problem that we don't say Chinese companies. Um, the problem as I see it. Uh, now, you know, with regard, so that's my answer to, to, you know, it's not really being about CFIUS reform, uh, in my opinion. Um, with regard to abuse, uh, I, I think the abuse comes, you know, we, the abuse comes from the fact that if you get a headline failure of the protection of U.S. IP, whether it's by cyber or by export controls or by an acquisition or whatever it is, the journal does some investigation and covers up some US company that had a technology that's gone out of business because the Chinese have gotten it somehow. They, they never announced they were researching it, but then one day they have all of it. Amazing how that works. Um, that's going to turn political. And it's going to turn into, uh, you know, uh, depending on the configuration of the Congress, but even putting that aside, as I mentioned briefly before, I think the 2020 election is going to see more aggressive rhetoric towards China than the 2016 election, not less aggressive rhetoric. And I think, you know, I, I have been long been a you know, treat of China, call for treating China as an economic predator. But you want to do that, as the panelists have mentioned, you don't want to do that in the middle of a hot political. So you want to do it thoughtfully. And I, I think the abuse comes from the fact that a senior official or even the president says, well, you know, we've got the Scythius thing and we're going to, you know, turn that into something that's going to prevent anything like this terrible loss of U.S. technology and jobs from happening again. Uh, and then the direction that goes out to people at Commerce and Treasury is grab everything and block everything. So that's where I think the, the, the potential for abuse comes from. It's the combination of a more an administration that was going to be more expansive anyway, a more expansive firma, uh, and then politicization in 2020. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying that's where the risk is. Hi, uh, Katie Wang with NTD TV. I'm just curious, uh, during the process of this legislation, um, before it passed, uh, did you see any effort from Chinese uh, government or uh, companies that try to dilute this, um, this legislation? You're all looking at me? Um, I was looking at Offie. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, um, I did not see any direct effort by the Chinese government. I, I do think that there were American companies who have a considerable portion of their business involved in technological cooperation with China that were very active in trying to influence the legislation. Now, you can either look at that and say that their technological cooperation is inappropriate and that they're being bad actors. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I did not see any direct involvement by China. I saw intense involvement by Amer some American technology companies they were denounced, really, in very strong language by both Democratic and Republican politicians. I think that might be unfair. I'm, I just, you know, if you're doing business and you think it's a legitimate business, you have a right to defend your legitimate business. I'm saying the action actually came from American firms influencing this bill, not from China. We have uh, a handful of Chinese companies, and um, they were pretty silent throughout the process. It was not the Chinese companies in our membership that um, were very vocal. But the Chinese government, I mean, again, I, I, I agree with that. I don't think we didn't, I didn't notice any sort of overt lobbying. On the other hand, it was very clear where the Chinese political leadership felt about this. 
insidious or discriminatory practices relating to foreign investment. I mean, the Chinese government has been nothing but clear that it has a view on this. So I think you know, that, that has been sort of baked in, if you will, it's in my view. Right, if the Chinese lobbied overtly, it would just, you know. Make it worse. Make it, right, it would just increase the chances that the CFIUS bill would be stronger. We've actually seen basically that happen in, in a number of other countries where overt Chinese lobbying has alienated more of, of the political elite rather than turn them in China's favor. Um, yes. Um, thank you. I'm Zhang Qiu with China's Taishin Media. Uh, I think Nathan uh, uh, raised an interesting point that about the M-bond insurance by word of, which it might be different if a EU company or J Japanese company bought it. So I'm wondering, does it ever occur to you that those un anti-China atmosphere in D.C. is a little bit overreacted, or you would think it's completely legitimate? Uh, as someone who's been calling for an anti-China attitude for years, of course, uh, I'm biased. But uh, look, uh, I tried to explain this to Chinese business counterparts over and over again. Um, Japan buys the Waldorf. Japan is a United States treaty ally. China is not. So the idea that we should treat a Japanese firm the same as a Chinese firm is absurd with regard to national security. Now, the Trump administration seems to be going the other direction and treating everyone as a national security enemy like Canada, that big national security threat. Um, but I, that's a mistake. <laughs> that's a mistake. Um, so, but the Chinese view that, okay, you, you, you review a Chinese acquisition differently than you do an acquisition by a country that the US has a treaty defense, uh, a treaty requirement to help defend, that's just silly. Um, what, happens, what has happened here is I think you know, U.S. politics, not just U.S. politics, politics are pendulum. And I think, you know, in the Bush and Obama administrations, we were too cavalier uh, about our relationship with China in general. Um, we were not willing, we didn't see, this is, gets back to the argument you and I had at the beginning, we didn't see risks that were very clear to people watching this very, you know, full time. Maybe we were distracted by the Middle East, maybe we were distracted by the Russian reset, and you guys might not remember that, but that's what we were trying to do in 2009. Whatever we were distracted by, domestic U.S. politics, obviously. And, and now we've swung to the sort of hyper-awareness of what the Chinese are doing. And I prefer hyper-awareness to, 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 to no awareness or not enough awareness, but it is absolutely possible that we can make decisions that are, that are not correct. I, the Section 301 is an example. It opens up on Chinese IP. That is absolutely justified. Now it has turned into this, we can put tariffs on all your goods, whether they have anything to do with IP or not. And that, that, I'm, not, I'm not soft on China. That just doesn't make sense to me. So in that sense, I think that you, know, you could say that the, the environment has become you know, overly dramatic because we've lost where the actual threat comes from, and we're just kind of swinging a baseball bat around hoping to hit something. So Mario, I could second this. I mean, we've talked up all this time about CFIUS and that sort of M&A and joint ventures, arguably. But look, China's tech, I wrote this down, China's tech transfer implementation strategies are M&A, joint ventures, front companies, talent recruitment programs, non-traditional collection like students and professionals, research partnerships, and intelligence services. So I think we've got a long way to go as a government. We're doing something on CFIUS here, but there is a lot even in the public record about the implementation of China 2025 and a dozen other programs we could talk to you about that uh, are deserving of attention. 
I would also just add, Washington does drama really good. Yeah. So um, <laughs> expecting anything less um, doesn't, uh, doesn't make sense. Any other questions? Well, with that, I want to thank you all in the audience and those of you who are viewing online for, uh, for participating in this event. And thank you to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you.